1: for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash Lavar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm Lavar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads, where in every episode I handpick a different piece of short fiction and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them and... I hope you will, too. Today's story comes to us from the Argentine writer, Samantha Schweblin. Now, Samantha is the author of three story collections that have won numerous awards, including the prestigious Juan Rulfo Story Prize, and she's been translated into 20 languages. Her first novel, was longlisted for the Man Booker International Prize so you know how she rolls she's got it like that okay she's originally from Buenos Aires and now lives in Berlin which has got to be fascinating this story comes from her collection Mouthful of Birds translated by Megan McDowell published by Riverhead Books This piece is called Toward Happy Civilization, and like other stories in her collection, it takes place in a world that's familiar, but in which extraordinary things happen. In an interview, Samantha herself had drawn the distinction between fiction of the fantastic, which involves things that could never possibly happen, and the extraordinary, that is, things that are unlikely to happen, but could. We begin The story with Gruner, a man waiting at a train platform in the countryside. It's a normal enough situation. He wants to buy a train ticket. But that transaction doesn't unfold in the way that he expects. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Toward Happy Civilization, by Samantha Schweblin. He's lost his ticket, and... From behind the ticket window's white bars, the station agent refuses to sell him another, saying there's no change in the drawer. From a station bench, he looks at the immense, dry countryside that opens out in all directions. He crosses his legs and unfolds the pages of the newspaper in search of articles that will make the time pass faster. Night spreads across the sky, and far away, above the black line beyond which the tracks disappear, a yellow light announces the next train. Gruner stands up. The newspaper hangs from his hand like an obsolete weapon. In the ticket window, he discerns a smile that, half hidden behind the bars, is directed exclusively at him. A skinny dog that was sleeping now stands up, attentive. Gruner moves toward the window, confident in the hospitality of country people, in masculine camaraderie, in the goodwill that awakens in men when you handle them well. He is going to say, Please, how hard can it be? You know there's no more time to find change. And... If the man refuses, he's going to ask about other options. Surely, sir, I could buy the ticket aboard the train. Or, when I arrive, I could buy it at the terminal's ticket office. Make me an I.O.U. Give me a piece of paper that says I have to pay for the ticket later. But when he reaches the window, when the train's lights lengthen the shadows and the whistle is loud and intrusive, Bruner discovers that no one... Is there behind the bars. There's only a tall chair and a table overflowing with unstamped slips, future tickets to various destinations. As he watches the train barrel into the station, Gruner also sees that off to one side of the tracks, in the field, the still-smiling man is signaling to the conductor that he doesn't have to stop since no one has bought a ticket. As the sound of the massive machine moves away, the dog lies down again, and the station's only lamp blinks for a few seconds and goes out entirely. The now crumpled newspaper comes to rest again on Gruner's lap, and he reaches no conclusion that would send him off in search of that wretch who has refused him the capital's happy civilization. everything is still and silent. Even Gruner, sitting at one end of a bench with the cool night seeping in through his clothes, stays motionless and breathes calmly. A shadow that he doesn't see moves between posts and plaza benches and reveals itself as the man from the ticket window. Now, unsmiling, he sits at the other end of the bench and puts a mug full of steaming liquid down next to him. He pushes it until it's a few inches from Gruner. He clears his throat and looks at the wide black countryside that stretches out before them. As the steam from the mug awakens Gruner's appetite, he focuses on resistance He thinks that in the end he will get to the capital somehow and he'll report what has happened. But his hand moves towards the mug of its own accord and the heat between his fingers distracts him. There's more where that came from, says the man. And then Gruner, but no, Gruner wouldn't have done that. Gruner's hands take the warm vessel and raise it to his mouth where a miraculous medicine reanimates his body. With the last sip, he understands that if this were a war, that wretch would already have won two battles. Victorious, the man stands, picks up the empty mug, and walks away. The dog is still curled up, its snout hidden between its stomach and hind legs, and although Gruner has called to him several times, the dog ignores him. It occurs to Gruner that it was the dog's food in the mug, and he worriedly wonders how long that dog has been here, whether there had been a time when the dog had also wanted to travel from one place to another, as he himself had wanted to do that very afternoon. He has the notion that the dogs of the world are the result of men who have failed in their attempted journeys. Men nourished and retained with nothing but steaming broth, men whose hair grows long and whose ears droop and whose tails lengthen. A feeling of terror and cold inciting them to stay silent, curled up under some train station bench, contemplating the failures of the newcomer who is just like them, only still has hope, staunchly awaiting the opportunity of a voyage. A silhouette moves in the ticket office. Gruner stands up and walks decisively over. Steam from the heaters wafts out between the white bars carrying homey smells. The man smiles with goodwill and offers him more broth. Gruner asks what time the next train passes. In an hour, says the man, and his offended hand shuts the ticket window and leaves Gruner alone once again. Everything repeats, like in a natural cycle, thinks Gruner an hour later as he forlornly watches another string of cars go by without stopping, an exact copy of the previous train. In any case, morning will come soon, and workers will arrive at the station to buy tickets, many of them probably with change. If there are trains to the capital, it is thanks to the passengers who must travel there every morning. Yes, as soon as I get to the capital, I will report that man, thinks Gruner, and someday I'll come back with change to this wretched station just to make sure he no longer works here. With the relief of that certainty, he sits on the bench and waits. Time passes, during which Gruner's eyes get used to the night and read shapes even in the darkest places. That's how he discovers the woman, her figure leaning against the waiting room doorway, and he sees her hand waving to invite him in. Gruner is sure that the gesture was for him, and he stands up and walks toward her. She smiles and ushers him in. On the table are three plates, all of them served, and the steam comes not from soup, Broth or dog food, but from substantial sausages bathed in an aromatic white cream. The room smells like chicken, cheese, and potatoes, and then, when the woman brings a casserole dish full of vegetables to the table, Gruner remembers the dinners typical of the capital's happy civilization. The miserable ticket man, so elusive when it came to buying a ticket, enters and offers Gruner a seat. Have a seat, please. Make yourself at home. The man and woman begin to eat, satisfied. Gruner sits with them, his plate also heaped with food. He knows that outside the cold is damp and inhospitable, and he also knows he has lost another battle since he wastes no time in raising the first forkful of an exquisite chicken sausage to his mouth. But the food doesn't guarantee he'll get out of this station soon. Is there a reason you won't sell me a ticket? asks Gruner. The man looks at the woman and asks for dessert. From the oven emerges an apple tart that is soon cut into equal slices. The man and the woman exchange a tender glance when they see how Gruner devours his portion. He, show him his room. He must be tired, says the woman. And then the first mouthful of a second serving of tart stops en route to Gruner's mouth. Stops and waits He stands up and asks Gruner to come with him. You can sleep inside. It's cold out there. There are no more trains until morning. I have no choice, thinks Gruner, and he leaves the tart and follows the man to the guest room. Your room, says the man. I'm not going to pay for this thinks Gruner, at the same time as he sees that the two blankets on the bed look new and warm. He's still going to lodge a complaint. The hospitality doesn't make up for what happened. The couple's conversation reaches him faintly from the room next door. Before he drifts off, Gruner hears the woman tell P that he needs to be more considerate. The man is alone, and this must seem strange. P's offended voice replies that the only thing that wretch cares about is buying his return ticket ungrateful is the last thing that reaches his ears the sound of the word fades gradually and is reborn in the morning when the whistle of a train already passing the station wakes him up to a new day in the country we didn't wake you because you were sleeping so soundly says the woman I hope you don't mind. Hot coffee with milk and cinnamon toast with butter and honey. While Gruner eats breakfast in silence, his eyes follow the woman's steps as she cooks what will apparently be lunch. Then, something happens... An office worker, a man with Asian features and dressed like Gruner, someone who is possibly taking the next train and has enough change for two tickets, comes into the kitchen and greets the woman. Morning, Fee, he says, and with a son's affection, he kisses the woman on the cheek. I'm finished outside. Should I help pee in the field? Once again, the food that was moving toward Gruner's mouth, in this case a piece of toast, stops halfway and hangs in the air. No, Cho, thanks, says he. Gong and Gil already went, and three are enough for the job. Could you get a rabbit for supper? Sure, replies Cho, and with apparent enthusiasm, he takes down the rifle hanging next to the chimney and withdraws. Gruner's toast returns to the plate and stays there. Gruner is going to ask something, but then the door opens and in comes Cho again. He looks first at Gruner and then curiously asks the woman, Is he new? Fee smiles and looks affectionately at Gruner. He got here yesterday. Gruner's actions that first day are the same as those of everyone who has ever been in his situation. Hide away, offended, and spend the morning next to the office that sells tickets for a train that doesn't come. Then, refuse to eat lunch, and in the afternoon, secretly study the group's activities. Under P's instructions, the office workers work the earth. Barefoot, their pants rolled up to the ankles, they smile and laugh at their own jokes without losing the rhythm of their tasks. Then Fee brings tea for them all, and the four of them, Pi, Cho, Gong, and Gil, signal to Gruner, who thought he was hidden, inviting him to join the group. But Gruner, as we know, refuses. There's no one more stubborn than an office worker like him. Held over from offices with no partitions, but with a telephone line all his own, he still has his pride when he's out in the country. And sitting on a wooden bench, he struggles not to move all afternoon long. Even if no train comes, he thinks. Even if I run right here. The night gathers everyone together in the preparation of a warm family meal, as the lights of the house turn on one by one, and the first aromas of what will be a great feast escape into the cold through the cracks under the doors. Runer, his patience and pride attenuated by the passage of the day, gives up guiltlessly and accepts the invitation. Adore. opens, and the woman who, as on the previous night, invites him in. Inside, a familial murmur. P. congratulates the office workers with brotherly slaps on the back. The workers, grateful for everything, set a table that reminds Gruner of the intimate Christmas celebrations of his childhood, and why not, of the capital's happy civilization. A triumphant Cho, successful, satisfied hunter, serves up the rabbit. P and Fee sit at either end of the rectangular table. On one side are the office workers, and all alone across from them sits Gruner. At Gong's and Gill's constant requests, he passes a salt shaker back and forth, though it is never actually used. Finally... P discovers eager smiles tinged with mischief on gongs and gills' childish faces, and with a call to attention, he frees Gruner from the exhausting game so he can finally taste his first mouthful of the meal. Now, let's get back to our story. Over the following days, Gruner tries out various strategies. The first thing that occurs to him is to bribe, P or even fee for change. Then, with tears in his eyes, he offers to buy the ticket to the city in exchange for all his money. No change, he begs. Keep it all... He begs over and over again, and he listens desperately to a reply that speaks of a certain railroad code of ethics and the impossibility of keeping someone else's money. Those are the days Gruner proposes to buy something from them. The amount of the ticket plus anything they want to sell him will be the sum total of his money, the perfect bargain. But no and he has to bear the office workers' stifled laughter. And then, another family dinner. The first of Gruner's tasks to become routine are washing the dishes after dinner and, in the morning, preparing the dog's food. Then, he begs again. He offers to pay with his work. To pay for something. Pay for lunch. Chip in, little by little with the work of living in the country. Chat every now and then with the office workers. Discover incredible talents in Gong when it comes to theories of efficiency and group work. In Gill, a lawyer of great prestige, in Cho, a capable accountant. Cry once again in front of the ticket office, and at night offer to make lunch the next day. Hunt field rabbits with Cho and suggest in thanks for the family's goodwill, compensating them at least for the delicious food. Learn how this is done and how one should do that, and also try to pay for that all-important information, that the harvest is done in the morning when the sun won't bother you, and the midday hours are spent on housework. And every once in a while, with the hope of getting change for a ticket, a hope that is reborn only on certain days, sit on the station bench and watch another train that, at P's inevitable signals, passes without stopping. Then, bit by bit, begin to see the office worker's happiness as false. Doubt it all, Cho's innocent gratitude, Gong's spirited hospitality, and Gil's unflaggingly subservient attitude. Intuit in all their actions a secret plan that goes against the love that P and Phi profess for them. And then something happens. It's a thing that he no longer expects and it takes him by surprise. Cho, Gong, and Gil will make mother and father's bed. Gruner is invited. They go into the master bedroom and as a team spread out the sheets and smooth the creases. And that's how it happens that something is revealed. Gong smiles and looks at Gil and together Facing each other on either side of the bed, they each lift up a pillow and before the surprised eyes of Gruner and Cho spit onto the sheets before setting them down again. It's the moment they're rebelling and Gruner knows it. So much love couldn't have been real. So he gathers his courage. Gruner asks, Do any of you have change? All three seem surprised. Maybe it's still too soon for the question, but then so too for the answer. Do you? Gruner says, Do you think I'd be here if I did? And they, Would we? During a long silence, they all seem to draw conclusions that merge and start to formulate a plan that, though still undefined, now unites them in a newfound but sincere kinship. As if the action could hide the words they'd uttered, Gil shyly straightens the sheets on a bed that is already smooth. And that night, when the euphoric familial love is reborn, Gruner understands that it has always been a part of a farce that began many years before he arrived. And now, nothing keeps him from enjoying P's educational advice or the tender kisses fee plants on her men's foreheads when they say goodnight and go to bed. In the morning, he submits gladly to the routine. Everyday activity. And at night, when doubt invades him and he starts to think maybe his bold plan is born of his own self-delusion, he realizes that the noises bothering him are really the light little taps of someone knocking at his door. Taps that, like passwords to be deciphered, invite him to get up and open the door, to find an anxious Cho standing there. Under orders from Gong, he's come to bring Gruner to their first meeting. The gathering is in the public bathrooms next to the ticket window. Gil, ever efficient, has covered the broken windows with cardboard so the cold doesn't seep in, and he's brought candles and snacks. Everything is set out on a tablecloth spread neatly over the floor in the middle of the bathroom. Sitting cross-legged, attentive like true office workers, the four of them settle around the tablecloth and pool their money in Gong's hand. Four bills, large and crisp. It's strange for Gruner to discover a new expression on his companion's childlike faces, a mixture of anxiety and distrust. Maybe it's been months, maybe years they've been here. Maybe they suspect that they've lost everything back in the capital. Wives, children, jobs, homes, everything they had before they got stranded here in this station. Gil's eyes grow damp, and a tear falls onto the tablecloth. Cho pats Gil on the back a few times and lets him lean his head on his shoulder. Then, Gong looks at Gruner. They know Gil and Cho are weak, that they're worn out, and they no longer believe in the possibility of escape, only in the pitiful consolation of more days in the country. Gong and Gruner, who are strong, will have to fight for all four of them. An unsparing plan thinks Gruner and in Gong's eyes he finds an ally who follows every one of his thoughts with attention. Gil goes on crying and he wails with all this money we could buy part of the land we could at least live independently. The train has to stop resolves Gong with a seriousness he hasn't shown before. What do you want to do? asks Gruner. How do you stop a train? We have to be realistic here. Objectivity is the foundation of any good plan. Tell us, Gruner, why do you think the train doesn't stop? Asks Gong. And Cho replies anxiously. It's because of P. He signals that there are no passengers. We know the signal for don't stop. What we don't know is the signal for do stop says Gong. I see, says Gruner, and then illuminated. And did you already try the negative? The negative, asks Gong. If the signal means don't stop, says Gruner, the negative is no signal, cries Cho. We'll have to pray, says Gruner. We'll have to pray, repeats Gill, wiping his eyes with a paper napkin. It all happens just as it should, as they'd set out in the plan. First of all, dawn breaks. Fee pokes her head through the kitchen door, and calls the family to breakfast. The little office workers, each one in his own room, put socks on their feet, jackets over their pajamas, slippers on their stockinged feet. P is the first to use the bathroom, and the others follow in order of their arrival, Gong, Gil, Cho, and finally, Gruner, who, since he knows he's last, uses the time to feed the dog, by that time already waiting by the door. Fee greets them all and hurries them along so breakfast doesn't get cold. Then Cho distracts Fi, bringing her over to the window and pointing to something in the fields, maybe an animal that could be that day's lunch or dinner. Meanwhile, Gong watches the bathroom door to be sure P doesn't come out. After all, he is next in line, and it's not strange for him to wait outside. And that's when Gruner and Gil dissolve the sleeping pills stolen from Fee's nightstand into P's big mug of coffee. They're all sitting around the table, and the breakfast ceremony can begin. At first the office workers do nothing but watch P's mug. But P and Fee are focused on that first meal of the day, and neither of them notices their looks. But to judge from the delicacies they start heaping onto their plates, the office workers themselves seem to forget the matter. When they finish, Gil clears the table and Cho washes the dishes. Gong and Gruner declare they're going to straighten up the rooms and make the beds, and under Fee's permissive smile, they withdraw. They'd agreed. That all four would meet in Gruner's room once they'd pulled off the first part of the plan. Once there, the office workers, or rather Gil and Cho, not Gong and Gruner, find themselves feeling nostalgic. Gil believes that after all, Fee has been like his mother, and Cho admits that he has learned a lot about country living under the tutelage of a man like P. The hours of teamwork and the family breakfasts won't be easily forgotten. Gong and Gruner keep moving as these ruminations take place. They pack some bags with a few little souvenirs, some small stones and other things Gil and Cho have collected, plus some apples to eat on the train. Then, Gong's watch alarm goes off. It's time. The train will be here soon because this is the exact moment when every day P gets up from the sofa where he does his morning reading and walks to the field to stand beside the tracks and signal. Gruner gets to his feet and so does Gong and now everything is in their hands. Gil and Cho will wait on the station bench in the living room They find P. asleep on his sofa. They try strong, loud words. Jump! Attention! Scrutinize! But P. sunk into the deep sleep the sedatives induced doesn't wake up. Gil kisses him on the forehead and Cho imitates him. There are farewell tears in his eyes. Gong makes sure that Fee is in the backyard watering her plants like every morning, and there she is. Perfect, they say to one another, and finally they all leave the house. Gil and Cho go toward the station, Gong and Gruner toward the field, walking along the tracks toward the train. They spot smoke on the horizon from a train they still can't see, but that can already be heard. After several steps, Gong stops. Gruner is supposed to go on alone. It takes only one man for the non-signal. After Gong slaps him on the back a few times, Gruner keeps walking. It's going to be hard to see the train approach and want it to stop and count only on the non-signal. To stand by the tracks and do nothing. To just pray as Gil said, because maybe that's the signal for God to stop the train. The train comes closer, moving along one of the two tracks that cross the countryside from one horizon to the other. And soon, it's at the station. Gruner focuses He stays as still as possible, and when the train passes him, it's hard for him to tell if that's the sound of a train speeding up or a one that's going to stop. Then he moves his eyes down toward the wheels turning along the tracks, and he notices that the iron arms that push it along are starting to slow their movement. He doesn't see Gong, doesn't know where he is, but he hears his shouts of joy— the train moves past him and finally comes to a complete stop in the station. Bruner watches triumphantly as the station begins to fill up with passengers, but finally he realizes that underneath the clamor of people, Gong's cries are directed at him. He is very far from the station and the train's whistle is already announcing its departure. Gruner starts to run. At the station, in order to board the train, Gil and Cho have to push through dozens and dozens of passengers who are still disembarking. People and luggage are everywhere. The same words are repeated like an echo along the length of the whole train platform. I thought we'd never get off. Years years I've been on this train, but today, at last, I I don't even remember the town anymore, And, and now suddenly, we're here! People shout and cheer. There's almost no more room in the station. Then there's another whistle. And the sound of the train as it starts to move off. Gruner is almost there. He sees Gong waiting at the end of the platform to help him up and he jumps the steps. A group of men who have unpacked their instruments play a happy tune to celebrate the occasion. Gong and Gruner move among children, men, and women, and before they can reach the first door, the train is already moving alongside them. That's when Gruner sees, among jubilant ex-passengers, the thin gray figure of the dog. Gruner! yells Gong, who has now reached the first door. I'm not going without the dog, declares Gruner, and as if those words give him the strength he needs, he goes back to the animal and picks him up. The dog lets him do it, and his terrified face goes with Gruner as he dodges the euphoric bodies. They reach the train's last car and pull even with it. Gruner senses that from one of the windows, Gil and Cho are watching him in anguish and he knows he can't fail them. He grabs hold of the back stairs of the train and the thrust of the machine plucks him from the platform as though from a memory in which their feet had recently been planted, but that now grows smaller and disappears in the countryside. The back door of the car opens and Gong helps Gruner up. Inside, Gil and Cho take the dog and congratulate Gruner. The four, now five, Of them are there, and they're saved. But, and there is always a but, in the door there is a window, and from that window they can still make out their station. A station full of happy people, overflowing with office supplies, and probably also with chains. It's a stain that for them has been a place of bitterness and fear, and that nevertheless now they imagine is something like the happy civilization of the capital. A final feeling shared by all is a fear. The sense that when they reach their destination, there will be nothing left. Quirky story huh quirky has has sort of been the hallmark of this season uh, for me um a lot of the stories that we've selected have have uh have a little quirk a little quirky kink in them and this one this one's no different toward happy civilization like <laughs> where is that? <laughs> And how do you get there? Apparently you need change. Um, and and, it, and it's not easy. And, you know, you, you, you may end up spending a significant part of your life uh, doing somebody else's chores. But, hey, <laughs> it's it's like an episode of The Twilight Zone, you know, um, where the, the trains just keep passing by, keep passing by. There are times when I'm not sure I know what's going on. Um but the but the story does unfold inexorably, and we're we're not in the same place at the end as we were at the beginning, nor even as we were in the middle i mean it you know that there is a progression that is enjoyable, and Gruner and the other workers <laughs> you know finally finally get out um of this station where they've been waylaid, but what's going to be left at their destination? What's going to meet them there? We don't know. When I was a kid um, in Catholic school, once a year, the nuns would take us on a field trip to the movies. And I remember one year, we went to go see how the West was won. It was this big technicolor Um, and I remember the anticipation. I mean, we went to the movies when I was a kid, but this was like during school. We were going to go on a school day to the movies. That was extraordinary. And the anticipation. And then for some reason, I didn't get to go on the trip. I don't know if I got sick or I think I don't remember if I got in trouble. But for some, I just remember the disappointment of not getting to see How the West Was wanted. To this day, I don't want to see that movie. I, I just can't. I can't watch it. I can't watch it. It brings up too much bad stuff. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all, with an assist from the very lovely and talented Kristen Torres. Our editing and sound design are by Misha Stanton, and they are fabulous. And a huge thank you to Samantha Schweblin and Riverhead Books for allowing me to read today's story from Mouthful of Birds. And if you enjoyed listening to Toward Happy Civilization by Samantha Schweblin, please look for the full collection as an audiobook narrated by a full cast of 20 narrators. And Brendan Burns provided his engineering expertise for today's episode. Thank you, Brendan. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend an episode to a friend who you think would enjoy it. You can also leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. We read them, we use them, we put them on the air. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story, or if you can't wait that long, well, hey, why not indulge in the next episode right now and exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one-week-early ad-free. Just go to com slash Lavar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, simply tap the menu button in your app and select premium for one month free. Lavar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon, and yours truly, LaVar Burton. Our supervising producer is Josephine Marjorana, I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time. But you don't have to take my word for it.
0: Stitcher.